0: Welcome to
1: the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Oh, uh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Erwin. Solo this time, Miguel's not here, but I am here with Powell Mietzel, and I can't wait to introduce you guys to him and some of his thoughts he's going to share with us today. Powell is an assistant professor in environmental engineering at the UT Cockrell School. He's also a longtime friend of Positive Energy, and he is generous in donating his time. Um, this is something of a research to practice uh, episode. So we'll just jump in now, so Powell, that was a skinny introduction i'm I'm really curious to know how did you end up uh, like what's your background I guess briefly, and how did you end up being a professor in, in studying indoor air quality any influences or thoughts on that
0: thanks Christoph and thanks for having me here I'm very excited to uh, yeah. give this uh, podcast so I guess I've been um, fascinated about chemistry of the environment. I always was wondering what uh, we inhale, what is the composition of those molecules. And uh, one thing that uh, opened my eyes was when I was reading a, a toxicology book when I was a young kid. Wait, wait, um, how, how young were you reading a toxicology book? Uh, Don't say eight years old or
1: I'll be... <laughs> no, I think
0: it was uh, sometime in my elementary school. Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, and I kind of bumped into it. And what I was quite excited about <laughs> uh, to read is that there were many chemicals that could not be seen and they, they may be toxic. So uh, I think the example there was cadmium. Uh, cadmium is a heavy metal we talk a lot about the lead, right? Lead in paints mm-hmm. in the buildings, lead outdoors uh, from- um, Emission, car emissions, yeah. For example, mm-hmm. uh, but we talk very little about cadmium. And basically, if you are in a subway system, the train is breaking, there's cadmium in the, um, uh, in the braking parts. So, cadmium is much more toxic than lead, and it's toxic even below the detection limit. So I was like wondering, Whoa. is it not true for many other things we just cannot see? So I mean, like always motivated about studying chemistry of our environment. So I um, at UC Berkeley, um, I was leading a project that was focused on measurement outdoor measurements. We um, were measuring from a navy aircraft um, air quality in California. So we're flying around the Central Valley, and we are measuring uh, pretty clean air. And 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 basically, we know a lot about the outdoor air. And, and uh, that project was focusing on biogenic emissions, uh, emissions from oaks. So oaks are. How do you uh, spell that? Uh, Oaks, Mm -hmm. Uh, O A K, oak Oak. Oak
1: Oak trees. So oak trees got it. I thought it was an acronym.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So uh, oak trees uh, emit a lot uh, of isoprene, and it's important for atmospheric chemistry uh, because uh, it gets oxidized. It uh, affects um, aerosol formation and uh, and other processes, but but generally, like. Uh, the outdoor air is generally clean if you if you unless you go to some industrial areas close to major uh, pollution sources uh, and uh, but i realized I- at uc berkeley because later on we had this very nice project focused on indoor air and it was the first time when we were going to pretty nice houses in Oakland Hills, right. and we were wondering, wow, these houses are so nice, will we even see anything? And and wow, we were completely blown away. Uh, we, we were shocked, because the amount of organics that we observed indoors was like two orders of magnitude higher than, than outdoors. So I was like thinking, wow, we are worried about this outdoor air. But the whole fun, and like we really should study as, uh, indoor That's air environments okay. that we are not doing. I, I think it's great you describe it, it as fun. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to bring you back
1: just briefly, but go ahead. Finish your thought. I'll bring you back to organics. So you'd like to think that,
0: yeah. So so basically, uh, we were measuring a indoor and outdoor environment, and and it's basically the only time when the concentration of air pollutants indoors uh, went to to that outdoors was when we opened all the windows, all the doors we basically flushed and ventilated the whole house so um, I don't think people generally realize that we live like more than 90% of life indoors and the air indoors is just so much more Polluted than outdoors. Yeah, and just at at least uh, in terms of gas phase organics, uh, PM uh, is a different story because there are different outdoor PM sources, but also cooking indoors is a huge uh, source of. All right, great. You've uh, just given uh, us three big topics, but just to underscore,
1: so um, for you all listening, when when we hear more than ninety percent of our lives indoors, that's. Data from the National Human Activity Pattern Survey from 2003, so pre-pandemic, also pre, you know, cultural changes and electronic gadgets that might keep us indoors more. So it's probably, probably more now. Um, so organics, and you just mentioned gas phase organics. Um, I challenge you to succinctly describe, like, in terms of indoor air pollutants, organics, and then this dance between gas phase and particulate phase. Yes I so challenge you.
0: So, so basically, <laughs> uh, we uh, historically, we used gas chromatography to measure uh, concentration of different pollutants. We focused on uh, emissions from materials. And that knowledge that we gained over the years has been very useful because we, uh, for example, learned about uh, impact of flame retardants, some SVOCs and so on. But there were very few studies that actually looked at the processes as a function of time. Mm -hmm. So for example, you could have a survey paper which surveyed hundreds of different homes and these would be mostly snapshots um, and measurements because uh, the truth is that chemical composition is very complex and we are able to observe now more than a thousand of different compounds. So it's complex and it's very dynamic. And it's very dynamic. Different compounds can uh, change over time in a different way. Some can be accumulating, so some will be depleting. And um, it's uh, another thing to realize is that we are skewed by abundance. Like we usually, and, and this was because we are limited by the detection limits. So we were looking at, for example, 20 most abundant compounds. But the point is that the most abundant doesn't mean that it's most relevant or uh, Mm. most important for toxicity. For health, yeah. And and human health, because toxicities uh, span nine orders of magnitude. Um, So, for example, it may happen that you have... One percent, a compound which uh, constitutes only one percent of total VOCs, and you might be thinking, "Oh, one percent is not uh, important." But what about if it's one million times more toxic <laughs> than uh, something like ethanol or acetic acid? These usually are most abundant and. I'm not concerned about my personal exposure to acetic acid and uh, ethanol. I drink kombucha, for example. <laughs> it's a very healthy yeah, me too. Uh, microbial uh, uh, drink. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and It's a SCOBY. SCOBY, Sym- yes. Symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast.
0: Yes, and the point is that acetic acid and ethanol, they have pretty low toxicity. You need to yeah. get exposed to a lot of it. But there are some other compounds which have extremely high toxicity, and indeed, they would be toxic even below the detection limit. And I won't even mention nerve agents or some dioxins, which are uh, extremely toxic. So for listeners, just real quick,
1: toxic essentially means poisonous, (laughs) and... um, there's other, you know, there's there's neighboring terms that aren't poisonous per se, but they're allergenicity, you know, not just an inflammogenicity. So, yeah, yeah, lots of dimensions here of health impacts. So yes, please.
0: Yeah, so basically, we we inhale uh, uh, mostly indoor air. Yeah. And we know very little about its composition. And, and now we have uh, we are very lucky at UT Austin because we have this one of the most sensitive mass spectrometers on Earth. It's, it's basically the most sensitive. It's two orders of uh, magnitude more sensitive than the previous generation That's exciting. of instruments. The full name of this uh, instrument is FOCUS, Proton Transfer Reaction Time-of-Flight Mass Spectrometer. So It's a long name, so yeah. we prefer... Even an acronym is long, PTRTOFMS. Yes, yeah, so we, we prefer calling it uh, the sniffer. The sniffer, the sniffer, and and it's continuously um, sucking in the air. So and you said focus. Excuse me, real quick. Focus. That's the, the brand. V, v- oh, O Vo- focus. Focus. Yes. Is it's that the it manufacturer? It's, it's the brand. It's manufactured by okay. uh, Aerodyne, uh, near Boston. Um, Fantastic. Okay. So the sniffer. Yes, the sniffer. And the sniffer uh, has a very low detection limit, subpart per trillion. So it's basically in the upper range of parts per uh, quadrillion. Uh, So parts per quadrillion is 10 to minus 15. And I still remember when I was uh, doing my PhD, I got to work with the first generation of sniffers. It was a PTRQMS. And I was... Uh, bragging to my colleague that the detection limit was um, uh, was upper PPT level like sub-PPB, sub-part per billion and, and mm. the colleague... Three orders of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the colleague was like, wow, <laughs> sub-PPB, that's amazing. And it's real time. So now uh, we, we can see sub-PPT. The consequence of it yeah. is that with each order of magnitude of lowering the detection limit, the number of compounds we are able to resolve rises exponentially. So like uh, uh, with sub-PPB, we could see maybe like 20 different compounds. And as I mentioned, the most abundant may not necessarily be the most toxic or more relevant for human health. And now uh, we are able to resolve more than a 1,000 of compounds. Right, and and it cuts both ways, right? Because you risk, like,
1: losing the signal for the noise or the needle in the haystack kind of dilemma here, right?
0: Uh, yeah, you, you want to to have signal-to-noise to ratio, uh, uh, well, uh, pretty high. So the, the, the better the detection limit, the more um, precise you can be in resolving... Uh, well, I, I guess I, was, I used a bad metaphor. I meant
1: you're ultimately going after health impacts. And if you're measuring thousands of more chemicals, each one of them interacting potentially with each other and microbes, to be able to correlate what you're measuring to the outcomes you want to prevent or cause good outcomes, that gets more complex.
0: Uh, Exactly, so it gets more complex and we also learned how to embrace complexity, (laughs) uh, not spending one million years in analyzing compound by compound. But to use, for example, multivariate methods, statistical methods that can group chemicals and can see how different groups of chemical uh, chemicals behave, and and also if you compare the abundance pie chart and the toxicity pie chart, they would look completely differently. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'm, I'm actually. I don't want to veer us off because I want to make sure we go kind of pedantic, but I, I, I got to ask this topic. So you mentioned these different groupings of chemicals and r- I was trying to look up a paper here in real time. You were studying furanols or f- you know fur- furans.
0: Yes. Did I pronounce that
1: right? And that, that's a group of chemicals that we emit?
0: Uh, well uh, uh, furanoids. Uh, furanoids. So that's F-U-R-A-N-O-I-D-S. Uh, furanoid. It's a group of chemicals we observed in consistently in different houses. Uh, uh, we are actually finishing up that paper, it's a long story <laughs> and I uh, should publish pretty soon um, but it's it, it was interesting because we noticed that uh, those wooden houses emit uh furfural which is a furanoid but then we found well, wow it's not only furfural it's a lot of other uh, furanoid uh, species uh, and and interestingly, many of those furanoids have been observed in biomass burning, uh, which is mm-hmm. uh, cellulose uh, uh, burning, and most uh, w- wooden biomass would be cellulose, colignocellulose. And when those polysugars, uh, polysaccharides uh, degrade or combust, they they generate those furanoid compounds. Uh, so
1: just cellulosic wood, this is not like a fossil fuel emitting emissions is yeah
0: it, so basically the, the, the house that we were studying in California
1: and it doesn't have to burn apparently yeah
0: <laughs> yeah it w- 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 was pretty old house and uh, basically like the previous indoor, uh, indoor research focused a lot on new materials because if you have new materials it often of gas is something right the but vocs and svocs yes but no material lasts forever I, I, in yeah. fact uh, all materials degrade and if you if, even if this process is relatively slow like it would take hundreds of years for the wood to to lose its uh, mass or uh, significantly um, the oils it, in it, yeah. it that basically this even slow process if it releases something that is highly volatile that means has a uh, high vapor pressure, you will see quite a lot of it in the environment. Wow. So, we found uh, that furfural and uh, uh, other furanoids uh, like furan, methyl furan, furoic acid, uh, forfuranol, and they were so nicely correlated, and we, par- we saw particularly high uh, emissions in the attic. Which was like completely wooden, baking uh, wood. (laughs) uh, Yeah, kind of. And and wood is fascinating because it's uh, you know it's a biological material, but it can last for such a long time. It almost like it's self-preserving itself. And those furanoids, the smell of furanoids, it's like the smell of library. If you go to the library, Mm. you have a lot of books, so it's like wood. And this, this very nice smell, I, I personally like this smell, yeah. is uh, actually comes a lot from furanoids, uh, formic acid, uh, and, and some other uh, compounds, um, and I don't want to say that this is like, oh, these furanoids wou- could be potentially uh, very toxic, because it's not about the, to- the compound, it's about the dose. So... If your house is not well ventilated, uh, there could be exposure, potential uh, toxic exposure from many different sources. Mm-hmm. So I think that. So it's not about the
1: compound; it's about the dose. It's about the dose. And yeah. so you want to dilute it to reduce the. Do- so, but it, that implies I'm trying to cut to the chase. So that implies that you are saying there's a concern with these furanoids. As far as health impacts?
0: Well, we, we, we noticed them. We noticed that they are present indoors and they are relatively quite abundant. There, uh, there was a paper that surveyed Canadian uh, wooden homes and they consistently saw four for all. What we saw, we also saw um, a lot of other furanoids that are coming into play. And the question is, uh, what is the role of those uh, chemicals and they basically might contribute some of them are odorous so they can contribute to the this, this, uh, this kind of um, special odour of each house it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a fingerprint yeah. um, uh, but yes furanoids is just one class of compounds we were even uh, quite amazed that uh, aromatics example benzene and uh, example C8 C9 aromatics such as uh, xylene trimethyl benzene uh, they were more abundant indoors than outdoors and you could think oh wow these compounds uh, are mostly coming from fossil fuel burnings but well interestingly what they were generally more abundant in indoors than than outdoors so the because there's so many different sources indoors and the volume and air exchange rates indoors are just so much uh, smaller. So mm-hmm. this leads to accumulation of, of some of those uh, compounds. The only time that outdoor concentration of aromatic Thermatics. compounds uh, spiked and exceeded uh, was when there was a person lawn mowing using mm-hmm. like this, gas, uh, gas gasoline uh, lawn mowers. and this is exactly the moment. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So. Well, the
1: emissions of mowers are not regulated, or maybe they are now, but generally haven't. So i want to bring us back to the furanoids just briefly. So the smell of wood, um, you know, trying to tie it into the MVOCs that you're measuring, these microbial VOCs, because you have this wood it's covered with microbes too. Are the microbes like is it the microbial emissions from eating wood that are the furanoids, or is it the
0: wood itself or is it both? <laughs> uh, so, so that's a good question and, and these processes are quite complex in, uh, indoors it's uh, you cannot like generalize that oh it's all chemical it's all microbial right you can say well maybe some processes dominate at different times yeah uh, but uh, a dance we, we were and I personally was very interested in microbial emissions that is quantitatively expressed as emission uh, rate per uh, microbial cell so that we can... Whoa, uh, per cell? Per, per microbial cell, yeah. For example, bacterial cell. Mm-hmm. So like an
1: endotoxin from a bacteria. Yes,
0: and when I got interested in microbes and chemistry from microbes, I quickly realized that uh, in elementary we, we, school. <laughs> we, we no, no, no! It was actually at, at UC Berkeley. Uh, oh, okay. But but uh, I was quite amazed that uh, that basically we we didn't understand a lot uh, what is happening with with micros indoors. We, we knew a little bit about sick homes, right? So obviously, uh, if you see mold, a moldy house. Um, then you basically start to uh, to worry, and you can smell those mushroom alcohols and uh, other compounds. But our question was, what is the microbiome in normal house, and would it contribute to yeah. uh, to air quality? Would it be uh, w- would it outcompete all these other sources that we use, for example, combustion, cooking stoves, and so on? And also, like, the way I was initially imagining microbes, I thought they were pretty much everywhere, because microbes are everywhere. Yeah, microbes are us. (laughs) Yes, but but also uh, bacteria and fungi, they love moisture. Like, they cannot Mm -hmm. really survive for too long. It's like the volume knob in some ways, yeah. And (laughs) and basically, um, if you look at the surfaces, uh, at indoor surfaces, they they w- they will be very heterogeneous. It means that it's a little bit like looking uh, with Google Earth and try to look at uh, like meter by meter through the whole globe. It's like extremely heterogeneous system. So it's not like microbes are uniformly covering the surfaces. You may see uh, oasis where there is a colony and they thrive there. There's some... Um, in micro scale you may, may have also the relative humidity, uh, water activity uh, will also change in micro scale so it will not be completely the same everywhere so you will see those oases and you will see deserts and our techniques to measure concentration of, and abundance of, of microbes also have certain detection limits and the wood, for example, it, it's you uh, it could s- see some rot or um, right decay or or, or, or uh, some some decay or because there is some fungus. But or normal wood that mm-hmm. is well preserved, it also would have some microbes. It just we cannot see because it's it's pretty low um, low abundance. And we we realize that we are able to observe some microbial VOCs. Below uh, those limits that, like microbiologists do with uh, PCR, for example, so it's usually like if the abundance is less than ten to the fifth, uh, so one hundred thousand uh, microbial cell per square centimeter, um, it would be difficult to detect by like conventional methods. You could do it. Uh, there, there are different ways, but generally, it would be regarded as kind of non-microbial right, right. environment. But, That's uh, fascinating But, you know, it, the, the, if, if, if there is microbiome on wood, it has a long time scale. And there are also chemical processes. So it's not all microbial. In nature, chemistry and uh, biology, they, they never work separately. They work together. And so there's a lot of uh, catalytic processes, like if you accumulate... Um, uh, too many acids then it will there's so many feedbacks and Mm -hmm. like between the chemical side and the microbial side and self inhibiting and so on actually i gotta i gotta do a quick
1: definition i actually for people listening just just to frame it right so if you're indoors the good news from a health perspective is you are in air of our own making right we can we can make it healthy we don't know exactly if we are because we generally don't ventilate but I want to make it clear like let's say you're in, in indoors even including in a car the room you're in like the room we're in right now Powell has probably got I don't know a couple hundred pounds of air in it so we're immersed in this like fishbowl filled with this fluid of air and you're breathing into it I'm breathing into it um, and it's got all these surfaces these six surfaces much of these surfaces has these oasis of microbial activity they're digesting things out of the air and emitting me- metabolites uh, back into the air. So it's a big, rich dance. You know, there's like a linoleum floor and the suspended ceiling. We're in your office. Oh, and you've got CO2 we're emitting. Oh,
0: 561. That's pretty darn good. Uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Because, so it's not exactly the fishbowl because you can see that yeah, it's there's like a supply air. It's got a circulation
1: system. It's, it's, it's pretty good. So... Um, uh, but, Interestingly, but, just super briefly, commercial
0: buildings' ventilation is generally better than residential. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and the issue with residential, like at least in Texas, many uh, residential uh, homes are 100% recirculated. So you have an HVAC filter, for example, but it um, cleans uh, uh, part, some particles. It doesn't clean gas phase, uh, air toxics or... yeah um co2 and so basically there's still a need for ventilating absolutely the,
1: the the nasty joke or kind of unpleasant joke in the building science world is you'll we don't have recirculating toilets <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> so it right now you're, you're alluding to this and I just want to frame it for listeners right like oh, this is a good one it's like it's the 20s, the 2020s, and it's kind of like the roaring 20s of indoor air quality understanding. You're in the field at a time when it is, um, not just the chemistry is dynamic, but the understanding is very dynamic. Is that an c- accurate characterization?
0: Yeah, the the basically, um, I think it's a good, good time for indoor air quality, the number of papers that are coming out now. This field is literally exploding, and now that the atmospheric community also realized that uh, these are the environments that we need to study and they are important for health and also there's a considerable flux from the homes like uh, especially in urban areas in the cities um uh, in new york city for example we um where we have one project we it's basically humans emit a lot as well and and, and it's quite uh, a substantial flux uh, that if you enclose indoors when the air exchange rates are not so high, the dilution is much lower than in in outer atmosphere the, it, it's not surprising that exposure to many of the pollutants is so much higher so one thing that can help the uh, general public is understand how important it is to, to ventilate the uh, homes and you don't have to ventilate all the time uh, you can for example f- do it after like cooking episode or so during cooking because exposure uh, is uh, exposure mm-hmm. is actually this if you have a graph of uh, concentration of pollutants versus time uh, this area under the curve is your exposure? Mm-hmm. So this area under the curve will be super large if you don't ventilate the house after dinner, after cooking episode, because uh, the air exchange rates in residential homes are very low. You know, a have to two So or something. basically, <laughs> you would need to inhale a lot of uh, those cooking aerosol, aerosols and acrolein, and lots of other gas phase chemicals. And if you ventilate it, well, at least uh, your exposure would be just so much Mm -hmm. lower. And there's an increasing number of uh, literature showing uh, that this indoor air quality has even effect on the performance at work next day Mm -hmm. and uh, how uh, how you feel generally. So it's not only health impact, it's also impact on well-being. Mm. Yeah, uh, and also like coming back to, uh, to microbes. Yeah, uh, and microbes, sure. I, 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 want, I, I, want, I want to make the point mm-hmm. that, uh, in general, the chemical processes, especially combustion, is a major source of volatile organic compounds. So microbial emissions... If outdoor
1: organics is combustion,
0: okay. Yes, yes. And, and the compounds emitted by microbiome, especially in the healthy house, wouldn't be able to outcompete those chemical processes. But they are not insignificant. We actually calculated that even the microbiomes, biofilms that grow on kitchen sinks and because these are um, uh, uh, periodically wet surfaces yeah, yeah. And, and the biofilm will c- uh, grow there similar thing on bathroom tiles. E- even if we take only bathroom tiles and kitchen sinks um, the uh, concentration of, uh, of ultra-organic compounds coming from those uh, uh, microbial VOCs uh, would exceed total VOCs outdoors. Whoa. So it would be small compared to the total VOCs indoors, but it would still be higher than that outdoors.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's mind-blowing. Yes. And, and that... It was that common knowledge when your career began?
0: No, I think it it was. Uh, no one knew about it, and we're lucky to be funded by uh, by the Sloan uh, project. So, yeah, HomeCam Sp- and others. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And AP Sloan is great because they fund ideas that literally open the doors uh, to to new directions, and they facilitate uh, those studies now other funders uh, get more and more interested about uh, indoor air and so on, including EPA and uh, Yeah,
1: so once we start to turn societal attention toward it, so thank you, Sloan, and thank you, uh, Corbett uh, and other people that have been reporting on that and making it more mainstream. Okay. And
0: and to your question regarding uh, particles and uh, and gases. the compounds that span orders of magnitude in concentration, reactivity, volatilities. Certain compounds uh, have pretty high boiling points. So, for example, acetone uh, has a high, uh, relatively low, low boiling point. Yeah, it's a high, you meant low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 high vapor pressure. Mm-hmm. So it means that it's. Right. highly volatile to turn into a gas <laughs> yeah and it's usually or vapor mm-hmm. very abundant in the gas phase on the other hand uh, plasticizers for example uh, dibutyl phthalate or some other phthalates that they, they would have boiling points uh, like uh, closer to 300 degrees c so they basically their the maximum concentration they can accumulate is much Smaller, even if there was a lot of those compounds on the surfaces, for example, uh, they would not build up to super high gas phase concentrations. But as I mentioned, they uh, can be so much more toxic, so many orders of magnitude more toxic, that even like this small, uh, uh, relatively smaller exposure than to ethanol, for example, can be important. And uh, these basically. S- these compounds with high boiling points and low vapor pressures, we uh, we call them semi-volatile organic compounds because they are both in the gas phase and in the particle phase. And then you can go even, even uh, lower in volatilities, and I refuse to call anything non-volatile. Sometimes we say, oh, this solid is non-volatile. Well, <laughs> even <laughs> solids have finite vapor pressure you can like smell he's pointing things. to the desktop by the way <laughs> yes so, so uh, everything has some finite vapor pressure it's only the matter how sensitive instruments we have yeah yeah to see a- th- and the dose and,
1: and yeah and our response to it so cooking it puts a lot of heat drives a lot of chemistry uh,
0: uh, It it drives a lot of uh, compounds that uh, come from uh, degradation of uh, cooking and also uh, if you use different oils, uh, these oils will emit a lot of uh, fatty acids and um, uh, compounds which would normally be low volatility, but the vapor pressure does not only depend on the chemical, it also depends on the temperature. So if you heat something, suddenly you make all these <laughs> compounds more volatile, so you see a lot of compounds in the gas phase. And when uh, those vapors uh, uh, cool cool down, they start condensing, and this all goes to the, uh, to the walls, to, to the surfaces. Um, in terms of the impact on human health, uh, thanks to, for example, uh, six cities, Harvard studies, uh, we, we know that exposure to, to PM is uh, correlated with health effects and premature mortality. Uh, the question is uh, about the composition of particles, because we know very little about the composition. It's very difficult to measure. And then the question is, uh, if you are inhaling aerosol from a forest, is it, uh, s- uh, it does it have a similar impact on human health than the aerosol emitted from... Uh, steel foundry or some industrial process which right. would contain heavy metals uh, polyaromatic hydrocarbons and and mm-hmm. other uh, compounds so we also know much less about exposure to gas phase air toxics simply because we were not able to, to measure those compounds and, and only in the last uh, three years we have fine-tuned Uh, this technology to see sub PPT levels of of chemicals so we see more than thousands of different compounds some of those compounds serve as perfect tracers or markers of different processes so now we can really figure out what uh, uh, sources contribute the most and uh, I think the bottom line is that um, we want to understand sources so source control is probably the most important because sometimes you can smell something right and you can do different things you can spray uh, air fresheners to mask the odor you can try to clean but the smell will be there so uh, so it's basically the only way to get rid of the smell is removing the source because of course you can dilute um, uh, and it historically has always been that uh, dilution is the solution for pollution. And, and it, it definitely can help reduce the exposure. But we need to think what chemicals we are bringing in yeah. Because uh, some of them, these solvents and a lot of other personal care products personal care products, absolutely. Mm. And, and human emissions. Uh, they well, we can't
1: remove the humans, so otherwise it defeats the purpose. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, but but we can limit what we put on ourselves, yeah. right? And so if we put a lot of solvents, s- a lot of consumer care products, And uh, yes. Yeah, so source control, then dilution, and also uh, ventilating houses. uh
1: the they going to put particular capture on there. So
0: uh, and engineering solutions. So yeah, I, I think engineering solutions could be. Uh, important and uh, I think it's a separate uh, topic perhaps yeah. uh, but uh, in terms of engineering solutions uh, there are a lot of good engineering solutions but also there are some snake oils yeah that I have are that on my list to talk about on, on, the, on the market and they have not been properly tested and sometimes they were tested in a small bread box and uh, then they uh, like put to the HVAC system and you have uh, so many cubic meters flowing and um, and this is basically uh, what I'm thinking that sometimes like ventilating house is the most effective uh, cleaning you, you cannot uh, always do that right because sometimes if you have biomass burning forest fires or something else uh, it, it, it would be very useful to have some engineering uh, solutions to clean the air well
1: yeah so just to put a fine point on it right so in fact we've talked about on the podcast the five principles start with a good enclosure which from an air quality perspective means contain the air so you can condition the air and then minimize indoor emissions of pollutants and then I would say the engineering solutions are the next three points which is control humidity ventilate and filter so you're, and I didn't put him up to agreeing with us. In fact, we learn those from people like you. But um, so the engineering solutions, I like that. Um, as an engineer, we're very careful about filtration, speed across the filter, MERV rating, and all that. But then, I don't know if it was just COVID. I'm, I'm actually I know from going to expos at ASHRAE that it was before COVID. COVID all these active air purification systems, plasmas, positive, negative, bipolar ions, photocatalytic oxidation, and all these really um, excellent graphs showing tremendous reductions in pollutant concentrations, which even at the time, you know, it's like, well, you can cherry pick your data and show whatever you want. Um, But people like you have been saying emphatically, um, I mean, just, just to say it, right? So what's happened is, a global pandemic with an airborne pollutant and people selling products into the air quality world were like, oh yeah. And so there's this underlying basic principle of don't do air quality experiments in occupied spaces. And that's what we're doing right now. And I know Marwa worked here and had a nice lawsuit against her, so I think we should just tread carefully. But, um, do you want to make any comments about active air purification uh, as a researcher? Something?
0: Uh, I would say generally I will not um, comment on any like specific uh, companies or uh, and so on. I, I think the general um, point I would like to make is that we need to have some standards for evaluating uh, mm. those different technologies. And this is something I... Here, here, I'm going to
1: stop and applaud. Yes, we need standards for evaluating air quality solutions. Right,
0: right. And and, and so basically I'm on on the NIST panel uh, contributing with some other nice colleagues at NIST. And it's basically if we... uh, So basically we have tools to see what the device is doing, how efficient it is, uh, if it uh, emits byproducts and so on. But these things are not usually tested more, right, and I just don't want to overgeneralize and so on because there are a lot of great solutions out there, and uh, nice filters like um, i uh, we also looked at some some uh, filters that are used in clean rooms or surgical theaters, and they were extremely efficient and Not many people realize that this different, for example, filtrations, it mostly filters uh, particulate matter, Mm -hmm. and it uh, it won't affect the gas phase unless you have uh, some carbon carbon filters and uh, like basically dedicated system to remove gas phase. But then, if you have a filter, you need to change Change it it frequently. It could uh, reach the breakthrough volume, and I can sometimes be become a source of pollution. so. Um, oh, could you just
1: elaborate briefly on that? So so I understand activated carbon saturates, essentially. And so if I'm still exposing saturated carbon to gas phase pollutants, it makes it worse?
0: Well, I can just give you an example. When uh, there were uh, California fires, um, oh, man. I basically got an air purifier. I was very careful not to choose the one. With uh, UV wavelengths mm-hmm. that generates ozone, so I just got the one with. Uh, with Two hundred fifty-four uh, nanometer. Yeah, with, with no, no. I just got the one with HEPA filter. Mm. Oh, it was so without the UV. Yeah, it was without the UV and and also with the uh, uh, pre-filter. So that pre-filter. Protects. Uh, the. Contained uh, uh, activated carbon that was removing um, pollutants and it really worked quite efficiently like even if you were like cooking something and so on it was reducing this odor smell and and so on and I was using it all the time when there were uh, fires it was kind of foggy outdoors you can see this uh, uh, smog kind of uh, dust and uh, 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 biomass burning uh, particles Uh, so so I was running it a lot and then uh, the uh, the first fire finished, so uh, I put the air purifier oh. aside, and then after some time Brilliant. I needed to use it, and I turned it on, and I couldn't believe it. It's the whole smelled like fire. room again filled out this like s- fire smell, and so on. So it it cle- clearly was. Actually, giving off. it had
1: sorbed them, and then it was Absolutely. desorbing. Absolutely. Wow! So, if you had taken it outdoors and put it in hot, sunny conditions, it might have
0: desorbed outdoors, and then you could use it. Or is um, it? I, I think there are some ways of regenerating uh, filters and so on. I don't want to go too much there. Yeah, exactly. Because because, because also it's it's the question about uh, not only how efficient the filter is, but how effective it is. So. Um, even if you have 100% efficiency, but there is a small flow through the device, uh, it will not clean a large uh, volume of air. So, um, ventilating uh, homes, like in in general, uh, the outdoor air quality is just so much better in terms of gas phase concentrations, And it's never... Really cleaner I- indoors than outdoors uh, in terms of gas phase, and unless you have some very specific engineering solutions, that's because it's always outdoor plants. So uh, even right. if you close that's up the windows, what what yeah, yeah, things will uh, uh, will penetrate and, and and you add more sources from indoors.
1: So, this is challenging, y'all, listening. I, my brain wants to go so many different directions. So, he was just alluding to clean air delivery rate, right? You can have a very effective filter, but it's moving a very small amount, producing a very small amount of clean air. Um, and you could compare that to one that was less effective, moving a lot more air through it. Um, so, that's the CADR, and we have information on that. But I'm curious if you know, and you can just say, no, it's not my expertise. Um, filter media is. Uh, it's not just a sieve. Filters aren't sieves. Um, they have a characteristic dip in the middle or in, in the around 300 nanometers. And, well, just generally the filter characteristics have electret characteristics, where they're using electrostatic forces to trap the particles. And that wears off over time. And I'm curious if you know much about electret degradation, and specifically in humid climates.
0: And I said no as a fine answer. <laughs> yeah. So everything that de- degrades and um, all these kind of new solutions should be properly tested. I haven't yet tested uh, those technologies. I think we should uh, take them um, to our lab and, and and see what is happening. Yeah. And how significant that process is. And um, so. Uh, yeah, I It should be rated, there should be ratings on how
1: quickly these filter characteristics degrade.
0: Because right?
1: you buy a filter, it's supposed to be effective to a certain level. Yeah, please.
0: I, I definitely would test uh, <laughs> those solutions first and and evaluate how efficient it is, and it was nice that you brought up CADR, CADR is the good metrics, and it's not al- always disclosed. Or measured by the manufacturers, some and it darn well should be. It should be, <laughs> and, and and many um, manufacturers and good air purifiers, they, they have. Yeah, permanent. Um, yes, they they basically are honest about it and disclose it. Um, and some others uh, don't have, and yeah, so.
1: Touching back on the um, active carbon catching gas phase pollutants, and this question of when is it saturated, when is it no longer doing its job, I saw at a trade show carbon that was supposed to change color when it got saturated. Have you heard of that? Is that still happening? Do you know anything about that?
0: Yeah, I think th- uh, th- that could potentially yeah uh, be a, a, a good solution, but something people might not realize that it's also compound specific so you might saturate one compound uh. it's, it's still good for some other compounds so if no, you if you were cleaning some really large major episodes super high concentrations and so on that could uh, saturate some of those compounds but uh, and as uh, similar with CEDR uh, you know, it needs to be defined like what uh, a clean uh, delivery uh, rate but s- certain pollutants will not be cleaned and some others will be certain sizes so it's very difficult to find a solution that would be universal that would be like cleaning everything so either you have a good uh, solution for particles may have a good solution for, for gas phase uh, but then the question is will it be more efficient than like opening the windows and doors and like literally uh, venting the whole system for like 15 minutes and then closing up. And I know we are basically afraid. I would guess no. Oh yeah? I don't know. What would you guess? Well it, it depends because... Well I it depends on what's outside actually, <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, it depends because uh, for example... Uh, b- because uh, f- for example... If you, uh, we are concerned about uh, energy bill, Uh, and 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 this is why, like basically, we were building our buildings because we wanted to make energy efficient homes. Right. So in an energy efficient homes, you don't want to have leaky envelope and so on. Basically, uh, and we were relying on the leaky envelopes. uh, so the residential airs are pretty much one hundred percent recirculated. So um so now that we learned how to build those energy efficient houses, maybe we can save a little bit on the energy bill, but then the question well, the question I would like to pose is are we saving on the medical bill? Right. And would this bill maybe this bill could even Uh, Out, uh, out Mm compete the. As terms of societal burden, yeah. Uh, And like in the climate, like Austin, when we need to cool uh, spaces and so on, and dry, we Mm -hmm. don't want to. uh, Exactly, we don't want to uh, ventilate too much. But the good thing is that if you like regularly ventilate for a short amount of time, the thermal mass of the air much smaller than the thermal mass of the building so you will not lose a lot of um, heat uh, on, on the, this basically exchange and That's it's an excellent point right right so it's, it's kind of similar like in Scandinavian countries like it uh, there are some harsh winters and uh, so basically there's heating and so on but at least three times per day there is this uh, house uh, ventilation so you open all the windows all the doors and uh, it takes a long time to rebound. So we actually did those rebounds uh, experiments. It takes several hours for the uh, organics to accumulate back to the same level. So if you do it like a few times per day, then at least it will reduce greatly the mm-hmm. exposure.
1: That's beautiful. Well, just to, um, to make sure, because I, I, when I answered yes, I think the answer is yes. I was simply meaning reducing the gas phase pollutants and reducing the particulates by ventilating as opposed to running them through a filter. But I think it's really important to say that the the thermal mass of the air is lower than the thermal mass of the building, so that strictly from a thermal comfort standpoint of the the human mammals (laughs) in the building, we are right now dominated by our radiant exchange with the surface temperatures around us, not the air temperature. And and uh, that's still not common knowledge. People think, oh, I, I need it to be at this air temperature. But what they're meaning is, when the air has equilibrated at that temperature, so have the surfaces around it, um, well, in the limit anyway. Um,
0: yeah, and, and like, for example, uh, the research we, uh, we've been doing... Uh, change the way we think, and like for example, it's really I w- good. I was using a, a, a CO2, he's looking
1: at the CO2 again, it's only 544, and it's what 420 430 outside.
0: Yes, but when I was using a, a, a CO2 sensor in my small bedroom uh, previously in California, uh, I, I set the alarm at 5000 ppm. Of CO2 because I didn't want to be w- woken up and I was almost absolutely certain that it would never exceed. I would 5, have been 000. certain of that. Well I was woken up at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning it reached 5000 ppm so.
1: Wait how many people in the bedroom? Uh, two. Just you and your partner?
0: Yes yes so basically. Dogs, cats? And, and my wife. And uh, so Just you and your wife? 5, yes yes wow. because it was a small bedroom. And I was opening the windows since that pretty much all the time. Later on, we learned how other air toxics can accumulate and so on. But for my wife, it's still like she would prefer to um, to inhale <laughs> less good air quality than, for example, be cold or... Have <laughs> yeah. Uh, is, like thermal comfort sh- seems... Dominates, to yeah. Seems it's, it's, it's kind of... Um,
1: disappointing, I guess that you know the, the, our psychology outweighs sort of our rationality in the sense that um, as, a, as a human, we don't like to believe that there are threats to our well-being that we can't detect with our own native senses. So we discount them. <laughs> um, just as an anecdote on the uh, CO2, we, we have a Honda fit and if I put when my daughter and you know two, two of her friends and my wife and I are in it, so there's five people in it. It'll definitely hit five thousand. And I noticed the other day, actually, um, when the kids are in the back, getting really animated and laughing and talking. Oh my gosh, it's like a spike <laughs> of CO two. Yes, is
0: um, yes, yes, that that's a good point about the cabin air quality in inside the cars because we spend a lot of time on commute too, and sometimes we turn at, uh, on this internal the research, yeah, the, r- the recirculations just to prevent from black smoke that you might. Otherwise, inhale from a truck.
1: Yeah, or diesel Uh,
0: exhaust. Exactly. But then, if we forget to turn it back uh, to fresh air, then it will accumulate all the sources. It's a very small volume. And uh, it happened to me, too. And we are pollutant emitters. That's, like, the underlying point. We are pollutant emitters. Yeah, and and if you, like, build up, like, 5,000 ppm of co2 that means like you accumulate a lot and when you go back to fresh air it's like refreshing breeze you feel like oh wow this is really fresh air you can like detect this change this is causes a psychological
1: happy state yeah absolutely yeah okay so i have a couple more We, we need to start bringing this in for a landing um So mentioning CO2, ASHRAE has just released, I don't know, maybe six months ago or something, its position paper on CO2. It was interesting. It didn't quite go, it didn't like kaboom, here's the answer. And it didn't kaboom the answer to the question, is CO2 a pollutant or is it a proxy for human occupancy and there's other pollutants being emitted? How would you approach that answer?
0: Uh, So... As human, uh, humans, we as humans, we learned to tolerate how uh, high CO2. Like on a submarine, you would have like um, more than 10,000 and so on. So like unless it's really, really high, uh, I think it's also a mild se- sedated, right? So you don't want to drive at <laughs> <So> night. people <laughs> on subs are mildly sedated. It's great. <laughs> H- high CO2 but uh, I, I absolutely agree it's it's a great marker because it basically if you have a lot of people we have about 38,000 ppm of CO2 in our breaths. so uh, we have huge sources and we also emit about uh, we have about 800 parts per billion so close to 1 ppm of acetone in our breath and wow. there are also other metabolites, other chemicals so uh, there is, uh, if CO2 can accumulate to high levels, it means that many other VOCs, many other air toxics, and a lot of other compounds that can uh, go through our lungs to the bloodstream, and then some of them will go to the to the brain. We don't know what those uh, compounds yeah. uh, are doing, and we know that, for example, smell of rose can affect our mood, right? But the question is. How does inhaling um, uh, indoor in air and, and those pollutants, how, how does it change things in our brain? Because these, uh, if it's hydrophobic, if it's not water-soluble, it will cross blood-brain barrier. It will go eventually to the brain. We don't know what is it happening. It can inflame your brain. Yeah. Uh, like some compounds, such as uh, volatile cyclic siloxanes, which are added as lubricants to consumer care products, they are very volatile. Despite their high molecular weight, uh, That because they have this cyclic structure, it's like a little bit like a wheel and it makes a perfect lubricant because you can roll the antiperspirant uh, along the skin and it's pleasant mm-hmm. to the touch. But... Uh, I don't think we realize how volatile it is. It is odorless. We cannot smell it, and if we could smell it, it would be obnoxious. You wouldn't be able to. It's a yeah, yeah. It's prevalent. like it's like getting to an Uber car after the driver accused like, for air freshener, and you just have to open the window. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But with cyclones, we we inhale so much higher concentrations and. Uh, it's literally close to those used in exposure studies on animals, and we basically—you don't know, uh, yeah—it's not regarded as acutely a acutely toxic compound. But what about the chronic effects from such a, a inhalation? We also did measurements at UT classrooms, for example, and siloxanes, as before shown uh, in uh, UC Berkeley engineering students—they are top. Uh, most abundant VOCs wow. in, in, in the classroom. So have it spikes
1: whenever it's occupied. Yeah. Yes,
0: it's not uh, about CO2 on its own. It's a marker. And uh, and basically uh, uh, it's a marker of how well space will be ventilated if you have mm-hmm. a lot of people and you could design spaces for uh, ensuring that CO2 will not exceed certain limit because at the same time would prevent certain VOCs and other are toxic not reaching those limits, would keep the infection risk low because it also relates to um, mm-hmm. to, the, to the infection risk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Now he's referring to the Wells-Riley model and other models, yes.
0: Uh, yes. And, A- and so
1: what about bring microbe- microbial activity in, into these siloxanes? Are there microbes that are like feeding off of it or metabolizing it in some ways so I, I,
0: I will be honest with you I have never been afraid of microbes and uh, I, I mean, it has been only a few times I've but now, been, now you are it's no no <laughs> okay. I, I'm absolutely not I'm actually I think we are over uh, we are obsessed with killing microbes and, and I think it went to this crazy hear, point hear. when we like use chemical disinfection we spray everything we want to sterilize all the surfaces don't even realize how much uh, uh, disinfectants we inject indoors. We have this NSF project, uh, we were very lucky to get it during the pandemic, because it was a lockdown, no one was able to work, we were able to work because we had this uh, project focused on disinfectants and on the impacts of what is happening on the mask when you uh, do the disinfection. Does it make it worse or does it... um, actually helps avoid uh, some exposures so I think the findings uh, were fascinating and the exposure if you don't have a well ventilated classroom and uh, I was very concerned for uh, my kids for example yeah. coming uh, to uh, school after reopening imagine those school buses that are fogged with disinfectants chemical disinfectants and, and now that we are in the post-covid mostly post-covid Times there's still, I think, uh, uh, COVID is not gone completely. Uh, but is should we really like kill all microbiomes and indoors and so on? Because many, many of those microbes are are, are not, yeah, absolutely, or or are us, they're good (laughs) for us, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, so last one bringing you back to that small bedroom, let's say, in California, and CO2 spiked, but. And you open the windows, but there was a wildfire, and wildfire smoke was in the area. Um, what would you do? I mean, I guess CO two would be the lesser, <laughs> and keep the wildfire smoke out. So, I'm, I guess I'm, that's a roundabout way of saying. Generally speaking, how does how do you relate to wildfire smoke and indoor air quality? What's in it?
0: Yeah. Well, so w- w- uh, any kind of fire or combustion generates a lot of chemicals, uh, an enormous amount and even outdoors, like if you have a fire or you have fi- uh, 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 basically um, Ooh, a your <laughs> sweater, sweatshirt and everything uh, uh, It'll smell like smoke later. It will smell, e- even after one washing cycle you can smell it and you can still detect those compounds They're yeah. very sticky, semi-volatile and many of them are toxic because they would be have uh, polyaromatic compounds and And some other compounds, but but the point is that if you like close up all the windows, all the doors, and so on, uh, you will only buy time. If it's like uh, just pollution plume, then maybe it it is worthwhile. But if you are basically stuck in, you will only like slow down the penetration, right? You will basically slow down, uh, uh, and eventually. Uh, This will equilibrate and you will see uh, a lot of compounds will penetrate indoors. In fact, when I lived uh, at UC Village, uh, UC UC Village is uh, relatively close to Richmond in California where you have Richmond Refinery, there was some fire in that refinery (coughs) and it basically released uh, some aromatics and the guideline from the university was to uh, switch off the HVAC system. So well, we complied. We switched off the uh, HVAC, um, and uh, and you know, and I could smell. Uh, yeah, it's like kind of this gasoline type of uh, yeah, petrochemical smell. Living in it, hmm. and it was penetrating. And in addition, right, because your
1: enclosure wasn't air, well air sealed, but
0: yes, uh, and and in addition, it, there was lot of accumulation in the house mm-hmm. of, of other toxins. so like for example we study communities who uh, like vulnerable communities who live uh, closer to industrial zones airports and where outdoor air quality is less clean than in other places but the issue there is also comes from much worse in indoor air quality because you basically by default you want to close up the windows to uh, psychologically thinking to try to prevent from that outdoor pollution not realizing that you're basically if you cl- close up in a box you you will get exposed mm-hmm. and, and you're cooking and cleaning and breathing and, and, and in addition to those outdoor pollutants as well so um, I think uh, we have a lot of work to do, we do. to study as a society as in an industry yeah. processes and also uh, I can understand uh, how important is source control ventilation and what I would like to um, encourage uh, listeners is to basically try to spend more time uh, outdoors especially mm-hmm. now we have pretty nice weather yeah. in, in Austin and so on and it's, uh, we should try to um, decrease uh, the time spent indoors and increase the time spent outdoors. So maybe when there's another survey in like a few years, and if people are down from 90. We will be down from 90. This yeah. is my, my dream.
1: Powell's dream. Okay, I have one last point and then we'll see if there's any, anything you want to say. But just, you, you, you've said so many times in this source control. Uh, reduce the sources and you've also said in those same sentences that combustion is a big source so as you know as a society we're facing uh, some people call it a question but we're electrifying society and so we're space heating and water heating we go electric for economic and environmental reasons but it's that range that gas range that people are really resistant to and you go electric for that for health reasons right
0: yeah, so I I, I think we, we sometimes uh, get too narrow-minded. Like, we, we see one problem, but then there is another big problem <laughs> and we don't don't see it. So, it's basically the gas stoves, like, they will be emitting, for example, uh, nitrogen dioxide, NO2, and uh, there, there will be some impacts. But even if you have an electric stove and you basically... Put a little bit of food somewhere there. It will burn. It will emit a lot of VOCs. So it's not like um, magic fix. It will like (laughs) yeah, magic (laughs) fix uh, or or anything like that. We, I think, um, I'm a fan of electric technology in terms of electrifications and electric cars. At least it shifts the pollution away from uh, from people and kind of reduces the exposure to tailpipe and so on but we also this is relatively new technology and we started testing it as part of a, a, a DHS project and some other projects in collaboration with um, a professor Ezekoya from mechanical engineering so we basically went to one house and as part of training for firefighters we literally set the house on fire Woo! Yeah, and, and basically we put the electric car uh, to the garage, okay. and we wanted to do everything we could to ensure that this car will explode. So we charged the battery maximally. We put a lot of fuel underneath uh, the car, and we uh, like basically we took the mass spec sniffer uh, to to the mobile van, uh, mobile platform, and we basically were sampling dilute plume from away from the house downwind and looking at the ratios to figure out what concentrations would be in the house. So we basically the project um, was uh, very successful. We basically learned what the markers of uh, pre-explosions are. We first, first study, studied them in, in the uh, fire lab. So we figured out all those markers wow, uh, fascinating. When b- before the battery explodes, it... the uh, Cell will rupture. It will start uh, releasing uh, different electrolytes and solvents, and we can see them. And you, you probably have heard about those incidences in New York City. There were electric scooters blowing up um, in, um, yeah. especially when the battery gets wet, or in in Florida after flooding, there were like uh, cars were blowing up. So in in that house on fire, we were absolutely shocked how much air-toxics and organics are <sighs> produced in. And basically, like, I'm thinking about the firefighters because they, uh, yeah, they basically go and help Toxic us, smoke. but they get exposed, a lot of it, and they have proper gear, they have different, but sometimes, like, the fire is extinguished, but there's still a lot of those concentrations. I noticed, uh, like, some people were taking off the masks, after the the fire was extinguished but we saw like close to ppm level uh, benzene was uh, was extremely high uh, still so it's um, it's pretty amazing well the 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 surprising thing was that that particular car uh, the battery didn't blow up even though the temperature was like uh, thousands to thermal runaway but the design of that battery was so uh, was so well done then it didn't blow up so wow. i was immediately thinking okay i want that car yeah i want to uh are you allowed to uh, say what brand it was no i don't want to disclose you so okay. that it's not but uh yeah it's uh that's great
1: to know what a great study and so i guess you could imagine alarms being made that would say the precursors to battery explosion are being measured
0: Oh, yeah, we could like think about the, uh, the, the gear for firefighters, for mm-hmm. example. To, uh, also, now that we know what markers these are, we can develop um, um, biosensors that are very specific to those compounds. Wow.
1: Okay, well, so, Paolo, thank you. Um, and I, for people listening, I mean, what's happening here for both of us, but particularly Powell, is... This is a huge body of knowledge, and trying to meter it out into a, a linear sequence of thoughts and ideas is a, it's a rich, fun experience. And so, thank you so much,
0: Paul. Thank you, Crystal. Yeah, and, and
1: thank you all for listening.
0: Thank you all.